And we're on the air in five, four, three, two, one. Pencil. We are beginning to be able, cautiously and with our eyes open, to encourage some interchange of ideas. We have to start thinking about tomorrow. I've heard that somewhere. We must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. And let there be no misunderstanding. Our objectives are clear. Well, I'd like to go in Russia and show them this rock and roll people. Think the Russians could dig your kind of music? Do dig it. Save your energy. Lucky under! The big brusque satellite is just a damn it like I know. Um I am here for another episode of Here You Are Wasa. This is uh it's nearly December of twenty twenty. This shit show of a year is is almost over and uh the the optimist in my heart believes that a vaccine is right around the corner and that we're all going to stop dying soon. But holy Christ, what a year it's been! So I'm here with my friend Greg. Uh, Greg's out in Arizona, and uh, and we wanted I wanted to talk to Greg because Greg's a writer and he does yoga and he rides a motorcycle, so he sort of checks off all the cool guy boxes. <laughs> and uh, so I thought it'd be fun because I'm experiencing some sort of uh, writerly ennui or just uh with my writing and so i'm i'm going to try to talk to some writers and and see if i can find my way back a little bit so so greg thanks for doing this hey my pleasure dino i love to talk about writing with you cool so tell me a little bit about the early days like how when did you first kind of feel like hey this this thing writing is is for me well Dino I guess I never really thought of it much and then one day I was I was 17 years old living over in Menominee Wisconsin still in high school it was a cold winter day I grabbed a a saw and it's not like a regular wood saw but it was like one of these branch saws that have a curving type uh, arm on it and then a very sharp blade that's that's tense between oh yeah and uh i grabbed it because a few days earlier i had been taking a walk out in the woods behind my house in north menominee and i saw this tree with a noggin growing off the side one of those big burly noggins from uh, either like an, an oak or a hackberry or something hard with really hard wood and i thought uh, and I'd seen it somewhere that somebody had cut one of these things and then carved out a bowl. And I thought, man, that's cool. I'd like to carve out that that noggin from the tree. But first, got to get the damn thing down. And it was about 8 or 10 feet up on the tree. And I, 17, so I could do this, I shimmied up the tree <laughs> and started sawing this son of a bitch off. And I sawed the whole thing off. It was about as big as a bowl. And I brought it home. Some, hey, somebody's behind you. Wave. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I brought it. I brought it. Be, uh, I brought it home, carved it out, put some polish on it, and I had this beautiful noggin cup. And I wrote a poem about it. I had the audacity, or the courage, or the, the stupidity to show it to my mother. And uh, 
this is really kind of a painful personal episode. Sure. She laughed and says, <laughs> laughed and said, what are you trying to be now, a writer? <laughs> and, and, and then I showed it to one of my brothers. I have three younger brothers. He said about the same thing. I don't know. He said, yeah, because he was nearby. Yeah, ha, a writer. And I'm like, oh, my God. So my writing career started off with a huge personal shot, man, <laughs> in a way that was good because it can't get much worse. <laughs> All these pages of rejections I have from magazines and, and journals I submit to means nothing right. because, I've already been, because I've already been hit to the heart, right? Yes, by the, <laughs> by the one you value the most. Yeah, and by the one that I thought was going to, you know, the people right. I thought would support me. And so I realized very early was a great lesson. Don't ever look for affirmation from anyone. Just fucking write. And so that's what I've been doing ever since I was 17. Um, and, 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 you know, I went on and, and uh, did education, and I learned that writing was important. I wasn't very good. But I did a bunch of writing because it was fun, and I enjoyed it mainly, and I wanted to have a record of stuff. And um, eventually I went for a master's in, 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 uh, in the writing track, master's degree at Northern Michigan University. It actually did become something of a writer. I published a lot of stuff, and I wrote speeches for the president of the uh, university and some other places. And then just um, went to Hawaii, wrote a lot about my family, started writing about yoga, and that expanded. And before you know it, you know, I've written a whole bunch about yoga and I've published some nonfiction stuff. And I submit all the time. I use uh, Submittable. I use Duotrope. I use New Pages. I use Authors Publish. I use Poets and Writers. And then I just watch uh, things like the, the hashtag on Twitter that says Publishers or Writers or Lit Mags. And every now and then there's a call and so I'll send them something. And um, right now, since I'm retired and have been and with the COVID which is what you brought up to start with it's weird for me to you know in that COVID gives a lot of writerly time that is alone time sure but my my uh, my motivation has been shit so I haven't been doing much I've just been redoing stuff I'd written 10 20 sometimes 15 years ago and the good thing, though, is that all, that's all coming together pretty well. But uh, as far as new stuff, man, I'm just not getting anything done right now. Yeah, so, right. So for me, my story is, is a little bit before yours. Um, mine is, is right like I, we were talking about journaling. I think in fifth or sixth grade, I read the book Harriet the Spy. <laughs> and honestly, that's the, that, you know... Like you, you know, the the undergrad and postgrad track, Harriet the Spy is still the most influential book in my life. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm if I'm looking back and with with some sort of honesty, you know, and it was it was at, at a time when when I'm forming. And so, um, you know, she's essentially a girl who writes things down in a notebook mm -hmm. and uh, to remember them. And so right around in fifth grade or sixth grade, somewhere in there. I don't know exactly how I became conscious of uh, a diary, how that became a thing that was in my head. But at the end of sixth grade, I started writing in my journal. I, I started journaling, essentially. And, uh, and I've written, like we were saying, I've written every day uh, for 30 minutes a day for, all, for my entire life. 
and it's all but two years. Two years when incredible. Um, yeah, one year when it was, I was having a, a mental health emergency, and I, and I didn't feel safe enough to write. Um, and then it, another year when I was uh, mourning the loss of a relationship, and uh, so I, I, you know, I have these two giant, you know, these two breaks, but overall I have a a document of my life. And what's interesting about it is as we've, as I've grown older, you know, we sort of come into this knowledge of what, like when, when you're in sixth grade, all you're writing down is, you know, today me and Aaron went and rode our bikes and we jumped in the lake and stuff like that. Hold on. I can wait. Oh yeah. Hi. I'm just, I'm, I'm on a um, podcast with Dino in Wausau. Yeah, you, hey, you can keep yep. going, you know? Okay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so over the years you learn that, that journaling is, is a tool. You know, it's a, it becomes a writerly discipline, and, and lots of people have used it, and people use it for all sorts of different things. And, and over the years it sort of has, has changed and morphed and, and – you know, you, you begin to, to question its value and things, but at the same time, it's a, 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 a comforting place, if you will. And so, um, yeah, when, when I, you know, when I pass or, or at some point, nobody's ever, well, that's not true. Um, uh, my ex did, uh, I think at one point we did share our journals, which, you, which with each other in, in undergrad, which is, you know, that's like having a, a girlfriend paint your toenails. It's just something you do. Um, but since then, nobody has, has read anything. You know, since my 23rd year or whatever it was, uh, nobody's really read anything. So it's just a mm-hmm. it's a private document in my life. And and when I, you know, like the, the documents that I remember, like I'm a big fan. I have uh, years – uh, a little bit after college, they published Allen Ginsberg's journals and they, yeah. you know, I'm a big beat writer guy as, as lots of, you know, macho fellas discovered in, in their twenties. Um, you know, but, but sort of lots like Blake's William Blake's journals exists and Hemingway kept journals and stuff like that. These sort of documents of writerly process. Um, and I, I'm not comparing myself to them, but I think that at some point, you know, when I go like there, the, my journals are a thing in my will and they're going to go to my friend, Amanda, because she's a librarian and she can figure out what to do with them. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the, the thing that I, I wonder about now is why do you keep writing? Well, that's, you know, that's always the question. Why does one keep doing something? Uh I guess my imagination probably just leads me there, you know, literary imagination. Um, it, it happens. I was writing recently about what is a writer or what advice would you give to a writer? Somebody was asking me. And, <laughs> you know, I quoted Rumi, <laughs> giving advice is no damn good, no matter what it's for, uh, for lovers. He said, giving advice to lovers is no damn good. And I thought, well, giving advice to, ri- advice to writers is no damn good either. But I tried to write something for my friend who was a sociology prof in Ohio State. He asked me, you know, do you have advice for writing? And so I said, you know, not really, Bob, but to me, I never really started out as a writer. I started out as a listener. 
And it wasn't until I was older I realized that one of the modes of learning that I've always that I've learned through in my life is the acoustic mode. And I and I learned writing by drumming. And I talked about that in my letter to my friend. You know, there's rhythm and there's uh, the scent of the lion comes by hearing it. <laughs> and so you've got to you know eventually hear a sentence that seems to be perfect. And I aim for those kinds of sentences. And I guess I keep writing because I have this literary imagination and this hearing sense, this acoustic sense, that drives me to put the right words down on paper. It started happening when I was in ninth grade. I was running on the track, and I had some kind of a line in my head from somewhere. And each time I took a step on the track, a different word popped into my head, and I repeated this over and over and over like a mantra all the way around the track, you know. And so it's 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 step and rhythm, and it's word, and it's li this literary imagination that somehow, Dino, I got, I was born with, or I started because of drumming or something. And um, I can't get it out of my head. So I, I, I write to hear. I write because I hear it, or I write to hear it. <laughs> and, you know, when you ask professional writers this, like there was this, this book I think I might have mentioned to you by, um, edited by Mary, uh, Meredith Moran, and she interviews 30 writers, and the title is Why We Write. And I'm going through this book and going, my God, none of them could really explain it, <laughs> but they all talk about it ad infinitum. I mean, they really go at it from all kinds of different angles. And it's incredible. One of the persons finally said something that made, made some sense to me here. I think the author of um, How Stella Got Her Groove Back. She says, uh, um, I write, I, I don't know why I write. I just do. Or I write because I have to or something like that. And I don't even know if I can answer your question. Um, even, even if I had planned ahead of time. Um, how would you answer it? <laughs> yeah. So for me, there, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, the, the primary thing is, so, so there's two sort of tracks here. Like, you know, writing for publication is different than just sort of writing. And so, yeah. um, just the not writing for publication. The reason that I do that and I, and I've done a lot of work on sort of why, um, and it's, it's because it helps me order the universe. Mm -hmm. It'll, you know, like sort of writing in my journal, like one of the things that I, I often come back to is I once in high school, I got into a, a, a great argument with my friend Aaron and, uh, and I wrote about it in my journal and it helped me sort of, even, even as a young idiot, um, it helped me sort of get a sense of, okay, what the, what am I arguing about here? Cause this is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> when I, when I have a, even one inch of distance away from this, this is stupid. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, there, there is, there is some of that, that just sort of, the the journal helps me um put together my my universe in a way that that I can understand it a little better and it helps me it doc it helps me document things like it's you know interesting to go back and see 
you know, what I was doing earlier this year, what I was doing before the COVID lockdown. I mean, what I was doing during the COVID lockdown, that kind of thing. Um, it's interesting to sort of, I, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing things over longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and as, as far as writing for publication, I, I have, I have no good answers for that. I don't, I, you know, because, you know, I wrote about music for over a decade. I, like you, I've written speeches for all sorts of political figures. I've, you know, I've, I've written academic papers in regards to reproductive health care and all, and all of this stuff. And I, and I write those all because in, in many ways, that's how you communicate your ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and for for some reason, you know, like you, I I have and have developed a a, a toolbox, and uh, and what I and what I struggle with now is does you know and and I'm we're I'll I'll come back to this, but does does my toolbox does my craft and my training and my ability, am, am I doing anything good with that? You know, mm-hmm. does it, does it matter that I'm, if, if I was a sculptor, does it matter that I'm making the sculpture, you know? And it's, and that's one of those existential dread sorts of things that, you know, 2020 and, and Donald Trump and all of the rest brings and, and turning 50 to be fair. Cause that's, I, I imagine that's very emotionally significant for me even mm-hmm. if I'm not self-aware of, about it yet. Um, but like to, to come back to seeing things over time, I, I always use the example of a movie that I saw. Um, it's actually a pair of movies. So Harvey Keitel and William Hurt and a couple other people did these, these two movies. One is called Smoke, then the mm-hmm. other is called Blue in the Face. And, uh, and they're the story of this uh, tobacco shop or essentially yeah tobacco shop where you buy cigarettes and on a corner in brooklyn and this harvey keitel's character has been working there for his entire life since he was a teenage boy and now he's a an old man and every day of his life he takes a tripod out and he takes the same picture at the exact same time <laughs> and he and he has this collection of of pictures of this corner in Brooklyn and it's, you know, it's over a 50 year period of time or something like that. And it's, it is a fascinating idea for me. Yes. And so I like this year, my, my former boss Lon has retired to a beach in St. Croix in the U S Virgin islands. (laughs) What a jackass. But, um, and so what I asked him to do was to, to do the same thing every because he goes down there for the winter months and then he comes back up to Manaqua for the summer months. And mm-hmm. so I said, you know, would you take one picture from the same spot once a week and send it to me? And he's like, sure, that's a strange request. But yeah. And so I explained it to him and stuff. And I think, you know, he's, he sent me two and you can already see in two pictures He's the phone is in the exact same spot and the pictures are different and you can see that. Mm. And I'm super excited to see what the winter holds. Um, yeah. But you know, it's 
to to sort of come back to this idea of of is is it significant that that I write anything anymore? And I what what role does your ego play in you sitting down to write? The ego If it if if I had zero ego, I probably would not write anything for the public. It would just be for me. But you know, honestly, we all have an ego, and it's good. Yeah. I mean, my one of my mentors used to say, "It's you must have a strong ego to survive in life." He said, "But not a big one." And he made a real clear and important distinction. Oh. I think. And I, I love that. You have to have a strong ego, but not a big one. Yeah, what's and the I, dis- yeah, what's the distinction? Well, if if your ego is strong, I think you have a really good sense of identity and boundaries and you can deal with a lot of shit. But if your ego is big, uh paradoxically perhaps, you have a weaker uh really a weaker stance about who you are and the boundaries are probably not as good and you're probably more easily threatened and and therefore um even dangerous and big ego. I'm not going to mention any names, but we might have somebody in mind. <laughs> yeah. And and ego in writing. So so I'm sure it's part of this uh, writing in public that you've identified, Dino, which I really like that phrase. And it's, it's curious, too, we're talking about this now because I'm thinking of things regarding music in the same kind of way. And I have a good friend here who is a uh, absolutely fine piano player. He he studied in Juilliard, and he's from Connecticut, moved here in Arizona. I met him through the Harley-Davidson dealership. He's our photographer. And we do a lot of stuff together. He's a, He does keyboard. I do interpretive reading, and sometimes I'll play guitar with him, and we'll work together on some stuff. And he's taking a course uh, in... Uh, he's taking a course from a group in California on getting your music into public. And the, the leader of this class said in a recent Zoom session with him, with Randy, and uh, 12 other musicians from around the world, really, um, she said, you know, there are 30 million albums on Amazon or what have you, just like there are 33 million books. <laughs> so it's very similar. Your music may never get very damn far in the public square. But think of it like this. If you put your professional self into it, your strong ego into it, your 10,000 hours of training to get that level that Gladwell talks about as being halfway as good at something, and you put this on the line and you put it out there, you're writing, or you're doing your music, she said, but I'm, I'm applying it to writing. You're writing legacy stuff. You're not writing to be famous or rich. It'd be nice if it would happen to us, but it probably won't. 99.999% that it won't. <laughs> But you're writing for legacy stuff now. You're writing to orient this story of your life in a way that you can kind of be proud of and hold up and say, yeah, this is, this is what Greg did uh, out of his strong ego. Not his big ego, you know, out-of-control ego, self-centered ego, but his strong ego, his identity ego, his, um, his boundary-wise ego create boundaries, you let some people in, you self-define, 
and you keep the ones out that have no damn business being there. And I, I kind of like this idea of legacy writer, especially when it comes to writing in public. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fascinating. You know, because I yeah, and how and how do you ba- how do you balance that with submitting? Oh yeah, you know I I've never been one for a lot of big process stuff, Dino, or okay, uh, administrative rules and regulations, and you have to do this many numbers and this many hours of writing a day. That's all bullshit in my mind. So I just try to get one thing out there a day if I can, and if I can't, you know what? I don't sweat it, man. I just do something every day, even if it's only five minutes, man. It's like my yoga now. I try to do it every day and do almost do yoga almost every day, but sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes it's 20, and that's okay. Yeah. I just try to keep adding on little bit by little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad I'm glad you opened the door to process a little bit. Um, okay. Because I I. One, I I think you're, I disagree with how you how you see process, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and it's and it's because because you followed it immediately with yoga, because yoga yeah. ascent in in my interpretation of yoga and the way I've been taught yoga, it's a hundred percent process. You know, it is, it is not. It, I don't I've never no one has ever told me that there's an end to to yoga yeah that's good you know that there's you know okay you're you've achieved you're done you've got it that's it you're not you there, if you do it again tomorrow it's not going to be you're not going to get any higher on the the yoga scale of awesomeness <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. and so for me, I think of myself as is almost a purely process writing person. Oh, really? Not, okay. But not not the I think not the way you were going towards it in in the fact that yeah. um it's not about sort of as much as I think it's cool that people do, you know, I'm going to write f- seven drafts and only after the 7th draft is it good. I think <laughs> yeah. I think that those sort of arbitrary things are as I think those are for in my opinion, for younger writers, go ahead. You can go ahead and make those up. You know, you go ahead and say, I can only, you know, I can only write this kind of thing. And this is, and all of my poems have to be 13 lines and da, 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 da. And I think that that's all great. Um, But for me, it's the, the process is just going, just putting it down. Just like I talked to Keith Ulig, our friend, and I said, there is something inherently wonderful about sliding a writing instrument across a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And whether that means you're writing words or you're drawing pictures or you're just scribbling, there is there is something in that act that creates some sort of vibration in the universe for me as a person that I'm that I respond to and am tuned by and so i think that that for me i always think of um the painter that i that has moved me the most over my life is is jackson pollock and and i always think of pollock as a process artist Uh that it's not about 
the number of brush strokes, but it's about the <laughs> process that he takes to get himself to that tuning fork moment where he's like, yep, there it was. That rang true for me. And, and you, and you, you know, you, you did your time in Hawaii, you know, surfing, you just sort of, you get up there and you get up there and you get up there and eventually that tuning fork goes off and you're like, yep, now I got this. Now I know <sighs> why there are 75 year old men who are here at five o'clock in the morning before they, <laughs> you know, before they go back to their retirement home, you know, and it is, it is that sort of thing that is is the process for me it's this you know the 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 tuning fork kind of idea where you just where your body aligns with those that sense of of vibration if you will to to get all to get very new agey about the whole thing but you know to sort of come into alignment with with myself and sort of everything and it and just for the record, this really is making me feel great talking about this, just so you know. Good. Um, and, you know, you're using yoga language here, man, talking about tuning up and right. alignment, which is great. And when it comes to, the, to process and how you're describing it here, I'm not sure we're really too terribly different. Cause no, I'm no. talking about a self-regulated process, yes. which is kind of what you're getting at, maybe just the outer outer frames of right. that or it might be a little different which is fine you know? yeah like i remember i i really remember being a, a young poet in college uh -huh. and i and uh i would i i always come back to um david lee roth from van halen was asked once how about himself as a reader and he and he's like well i buy books by the pound you know or i or i buy books by the foot yeah. And in and in college, that's what I was as a writer. I was I'm I'm literally writing by the pound. You mm -hmm. know, there are fifteen thousand legal pad sheets stuffed away in a storage bin somewhere. But I, I remember Man. like having exercises oh. where, you know, like I my my ego was terrible as a writer in, in college. Um, but at the same time, what I was doing was creating those structures for myself. And primarily what I used to like to do is write or I would make physical boxes on the paper <laughs> and the poem couldn't come outside of those boxes. <laughs> OK, great. And, and it, it didn't matter what went in the box, but I only had that much physical space. That's great. And I and I because, I you know, as an undergrad that we didn't have we. We didn't have word processors yet, so it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, I was, I would have to type this shit up later on on a typewriter. That's great. It just reminds me of football last night. Some, they were talking to one of the commentators and said, yeah, you know, Tom Brady's the quarterback that, that colors in the lines. And uh, Kyler Murray, the Cardinals, of yeah. course, is one that colors outside the lines. Oh, yeah. So it's just funny as hell when you talk about it that way. In the box, write the poem in the box. I yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah, and it and it was it's fun. Like it's it's super like I still do it sometimes where I just kind of draw a shape on the on the paper and I'm like that's it. That's how I got to do it. And it all it did looking back on it, all it did was it just altered my perception just a tiny bit. You know, just that small click of Okay, we're going to move our head this way and see the world slightly differently. 
you know. That's great. Did you ever write poems in like the shape of a cat or a shape of a F? Or yeah, we did. Uh, like I, yeah, <laughs> I had a professor who did that to us. And yeah, she, she would, her name was Susan Fuhrer at UW-Milwaukee. And uh, <laughs> she would give us like literally like uh, handouts like you get in high school or something like that where you could fill in the, you could draw in the, the colors and stuff. And she's like, nope you know you you got to write inside the chicken and it's like okay you know and it was it was just simply an exercise to to alter our perception just to sort of you know make it you know make it less static if you will because you know like if if all of a sudden somebody said today's yoga you have to do with your hand in your pocket (laughs) so that's right so that's going to alter that's going to alter today's practice completely you know, it's not it's not a, 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 a statement of value of anything like that, but it's just simply going to alter your body. Then that alteration of the body leads to a difference in, in the outcome. And it's, you know, and so it's the same sort of thing. But, yeah, like I, I have friends who, who are writers and they they take that idea just a little bit too far sometimes. Like my friend Dan um, for, for a while was a newspaper writer and. uh and he he insisted, and I just can't believe this. He insisted <laughs> on writing his newspaper column on. You're old enough to remember these things. A Palm Pilot, remember yes, that? Yes, right. Yes. So you, he had like a stylus, and you had to touch the letters and touch. And it, I'm like, that's the dumb. I'll buy you a computer, man. He's like, no, no, no. This is the way I want to do it. Oh, okay. And then like two years later, he bought himself. Uh, this thing called a neo n e o and what and what a neo is is it has what amounts to like a uh an lcd screen that's whatever 50 characters long and a in a beautiful mechanical keyboard and you type you can see what you're typing you can't see you know sort of before or after but you're just getting the the words into some sort of digital storage and then you dump it onto a computer and i'm like Again, we're just I, I just was shocked at someone would create what I thought of as a restriction, you know. Yeah, and and but to be fair, Dan was yeah. he he developed his voice to, to no end. And eventually those restrictions that he created for himself fell away, you know, and he and he just sat down and wrote in a normal voice. But uh yeah, it was I always get a kick out of those, you know, I'm only going to write in pencil or I'm only going to write in X, Y and Z. And it's it uh, that sort of self-created binding, you know, thinking that you're going to find some merit over the long term in there. I don't know if there is. I know that it's an alteration, like I said, but, yeah, you know, sometimes sticking to that that forced alteration isn't isn't a value. Well, you know, it's really interesting when you brought up this story and you talked about he, he that in in part helped him develop develop his voice right. and I'm, I'm and when he talked about the palm pilot there was one experience i had you know that was similar and it kind of in a way it's just an illustration based on what we're saying here but it's i think it's kind of fun 30 years ago up in marquette the, the city brought in um these big poles that were maybe 14, 16 inches round, and they were wooden and 10 feet high. And they said to the residents of the city, come on down to the lakeside, pick up your pole, 
and then take it home and paint it and put it up by your mailbox. And we're going to yeah. have the whole city decorated with these poles. And in fact, they lined the lakeshore of Lake Superior for a number of months before people finally took them home. But I grabbed one of these poles and took it home, and I thought, what the hell am I going to do? I don't know how to paint anything. Right. So, but what I did was took a, a wood burner, and I decided to write a poem on the damn wood pole sure. and put it out by my mailbox. And so I painstakingly carved with a handheld wood burner in this big pole a poem of about maybe 12 lines. Um, and it was so slow, and I had to work so deliberately that the interesting thing that happened is that as I started working on this poem I had written down ahead of time, I started thinking about the words as I was writing them and what would come better next. And by God, by the time I finished, the whole poem had changed because writing a word took so long to get that single word down that by the time it came to the second or third, yeah, it had completely altered my perspective on the thing. And I put it out on the end of my driveway there in Marquette, and it stayed for probably 10 years or 15 years before the snow and the the freezing and the thaw in the ground moved it and it fell over. But, you know, the slow, the, the process like you're talking about can change the voice and therefore the outcome. Yeah. As illustrated by your friend and this this crazy writing with the writing with the damn wood burner. Wow, what a crazy experience, an eye opening experience for me. Yeah, it it really yeah. It uh <laughs> what you it just becomes a different kind of meditation. Yes. You know, like yes. like you'd already written your poem, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. you like moment to moment over a long series of moments yes <laughs> you were you were deeply deeply in, into that poem like you were yes. you were swimming in the deepest of the waters and yeah. as a result you could see it differently you know and that's that's interesting that's that's yeah and and the reason i even thought about it is that believe it or not i talked about earlier when we first started how I'm having a hard time getting motivated to write new stuff, but I'm doing a lot of work on old stuff. Right. This particular poem I'm telling you about 30 years ago that I put on wood burning, I pulled it out two weeks ago and started massaging it just a little bit. And my friend Randy sent me a new music track. I read it into the track and I have a whole new uh, spoken word piece now. Right. So 30 years sometimes, this process. Yeah. That's cool. And I thought the wood, I thought the wood burning, uh, wood burning the poem, and taking five minutes per word was slow. Dino, thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And now uh, it's got music. And now it's got music. So, who knows? Yeah. It it is it is a fascinating thing. To, it is. To 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 the internal. So then, that that sort of brings me to the the external, if you will. I just. Uh, I wanted to touch on this a little bit before uh, we talked about the the yoga and motorcycling bit. Um, but so you know, you 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 write in public, you publish articles, you know, you publish quite a bit of you know the yoga writing. And so, how do you how do you manage the audience? Do you get feedback for that? Sometimes I do, um, not often, and often not very helpful, except 
on rare occasions when I do have interactions and feedback from an editor. When that happens, right. it's extremely valuable. And it's happened a few times over the last uh, a few times over the last couple of years and has really really helped. With the public, you know, you can you can put something out there that you've written and I have probably 10 or more of these social media things. I mean, everything from, you know, read it and Tumblr and Twitter and, you know, Facebook and every, yeah. like everyone else and my, fa you know, Zing and all kinds of things and my writer's webpage. But you don't get a lot. However, um, it feels like I'm just doing something that I need to do. I'm making a statement. Make, uh, that's the best way. My friend, i uh, I've referenced him a couple of times, Randy. We wrote one together called uh, Peaceful Transition. It was about the transition of presidential authority and power in the U.S. and put it to music. And I said, Randy, you know, we got this one statement here, you know, that says something like, we have, there's the right for peaceful transformation of power that we have won, or we have won. I said, Randy, you know, some people that maybe aren't quite as, happy about this aren't going to really like this phrase we have won why don't we say democracy has prevailed or something like that he goes no 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 he says let's keep it like this because we're making a statement and i thought okay it's not going to be right i'm not going to always be 100 percent right i'm not going to always have something that makes any sense to anyone but i'm making a statement and you know what dino after 50 years in your case 60 some in mine it's our right to make a statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. And I and I like I said earlier, I think I'm I'm struggling with that. You mm -hmm. know, um just sort of you know, in in my head I'm always, you know, 17 years old. And so <laughs> part part of that is is always, you know, well, what right do you have to, to say anything as a 17-year-old boy? And the fact is I'm not 17, but, you know, it's it's interesting to sort of to come to terms with, okay, now you, you know, you're 50, right? You're going to, you're going to be 50 in like three weeks. So maybe you should start acting like a 50-year-old, you know, and, and maybe that's, you know, and maybe that is just sort of assuming the gravity of being 50, you know, that, you know, instead of resisting sort of the the knowledge and wisdom that comes with 50 and and this has nothing to do with writing but instead of you know resisting that that knowledge and 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 wisdom uh that comes with being 50 partially because that knowledge and wisdom also carry some responsibility with it um and so you know maybe i just have to accept that responsibility and accept that wisdom and and knowledge but yeah, that's yeah, that's a whole that's a much longer topic that that we can get to and talk to you know over the winter if you'd like or you know I'm sure I'll I'll keep working I'll keep chewing on it but uh, yeah and let's let's just connect the dots here between making a statement and ego the thing you brought up earlier right you know we're fifty we have a strong if fifty you have a strong ego you've earned a strong ego you've also earned the right to make the statement. Uh, it's kind of the way I look at it, you know. There, uh, there we are. I'm not, and yeah. I'm not. I'm not trying to 
Yeah. Believe me, I'm, I'm not trying to preach to anyone or no, tell no, but I, what I, else to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that the thing that I'll take away from this is going to be the difference between a big ego and a strong ego. That's going to be sort of what I end up thinking about. So Good. Good. Yeah. But all right. So did, did you want to talk a little bit about the you sent me a, uh, a piece recently. Did you want yeah. to talk about what that was? Sure. I talked about working with editors a little bit. Do you know um, a piece that I wrote 20 years ago? It was on playing baseball with my kids. And I've worked on it on and off for 20 years. And I sent it to a a literary publication, a literary baseball magazine uh, published out of Manhattan. And by God, if the... So it's changed a lot in 20 years, this piece. But the editor wrote back and said, Greg, I really like this. I'd like to use it in our magazine. About a week, and so I'm thrilled. About a week later, Greg, um, do this. And he gave me a suggestion. So I said, okay, God, it's hard. I did it, sent it back. He said, great. Um, I'd like to use this in our next issue. Try this once. And he gave me another suggestion. Oh, damn it. So I'm working on it. You know, it's hard because once you have it, man, and you're kind of invested in it, it's right. hard to redo. It's oh, hard. Yeah. So I did it, sent it back. He sent it back a third time. Try this little thing right here. Really focus more on the baseball itself. Damn! So I tried it again. I sent it back. Uh, he took it. They're publishing it December 9th in this baseball literary called The Twin Bill. It, and they have beautiful illustrations they tie to the writer's story. And I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. it. It's perhaps the best piece I've done because it was done in collaboration with the help of an editor. And it's about baseball and it's about divorce and it's about uh, failure and it's about um, and it's about extra innings and that's the grace of baseball extra innings when we get another shot to redeem the 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 tears in the fabric that happened in the first nine innings sure <laughs> and so that's coming and there's a there's a couple more too on down the line but um that's one piece I'm very, very happy with, and uh, I hope the readers enjoy it as much as I as I do. And yeah, enjoy doing. Is isn't baseball just the richest thing, you know? Yes, it is. It is. I and uh, you know this because we've talked a little bit about it. There, yeah. one of the most fun things that I have that I do in my life is playing catch. Yep, absolutely. And and I. I know exactly, like, I, I know exactly the moment in my life when playing catch was became an, uh, a forever thing. Like, I, I was in my front yard and at 2303 Radkey Avenue playing catch <laughs> with my dad, uh-huh. and he was throwing me ground balls. And he said, and he said, and I'll, I obviously have never forgotten, he's like, you have a natural talent for doing this. Uh-huh. And after that, I was like, I am never giving up baseball for the rest of eternity. Of course. And, and, and the thing is, I I played competitive baseball all through high school and all through summer leagues and all that sort of stuff. To In Wisconsin, it was the American Legion was uh, yep. sort of 
when you aged out of of essential of non college aged athletics, and uh, and I was a terrible hitter, at like <laughs> terrible hitter. Like I, one year in Babe Ruth, I yeah. I batted zero. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Dude. It's really bad. Like it was, it was so like catchers would be like, well, here's the third out. And it was just trying to put me in the line, but I'm left-handed and I'm a really, really good infielder at the time. I'm left-handed, I'm left-handed too. That's right. Kind of cool. And so there's cool. always a place, there seemed to always be a place for me in yeah. the infield at no matter how bad I was at hitting. And I was <laughs> terrible, you know, but yeah, I, yeah, I loved it. I I used to uh, in Babe Ruth. I played right field sometimes, and one time I threw a guy out at home plate, and wow, I've you mm. know never felt so excited. You know, you'd think yes. I you'd think I was Willie Mays for crying out loud. You know, <laughs> and I know I I know secretly, you know, and I never confess it to my team that I was just throwing the ball as yeah, hard as I could, course. and it just by pure luck landed anywhere near the catcher you know there's no there's no there was no aiming that thing i was just throwing it as hard as i could but yeah and to this day i i like i have four or five guys that i that i nurture my friendship with because primarily they play catch with me i mean we do other things but i play catch with them and it is there is something like there's a fellow who uh went to Oshkosh and he was a pitcher and stuff like that. And here, just hearing the ball hit my glove mm-hmm. is so amazing. So amazing that I, I, uh, he's, he's a, just a asshole of a human being, but the way, the way we play catch, I'll, I'll forgive him just about everything, you know? So. Oh, I completely understand that. And I know where you're going, uh, where you're coming from on that. And, just as a side note, too, I'm not sure if you've read this, but there was an essay in one of the um, college readers a number of years ago that one of my favorite essays, Donald Hall, Fathers Playing Catch with Their Sons. If you haven't read it, okay. it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Yeah, it 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 really is. Yeah. Like, I, I'm sitting here and I can my baseball glove is within six feet of me and I <laughs> and I have a collection of baseballs. How fantastic, you know, and it's like I. You know how when you sort of have dove into something and you can feel a difference that nobody else can feel, mm-hmm. right? And there is a diff- there is a lightness about some baseballs versus other baseballs. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the balls that they use in the major leagues, if you put one in your hand, it feels differently than just one of the crappy baseballs that you buy at target for your kid. Yeah. Yeah. They feel they're different things. And I, oh, yeah. and, and I collect, you know, baseballs and I, I, I love them to death. So yeah. Yeah. And I have a, I have a, my dad bought me when I was in high school or no, I was ninth grade or so junior high. He bought me a glove at a rummage sale, a left-handed fielder's glove that was a Roberto Clemente model. Oh, for God's sakes. Right. And the thing is, I didn't know who <laughs> Roberto Clemente was, but now like I know like every now and then I, I, go, I go on eBay and I see how much that glove is worth. And I'm like, well, it's good that I didn't get rid of it. I also have uh, the very first first baseman's mitt my dad bought me, which was a Willie Stargell model. 
<laughs> from the Willie from the Pirates. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned Roberto Clemente in the in the first edition of this essay that that will be coming out soon. Yeah. When I first wrote it way back in 2000, uh, I had Roberto Clemente front and center in that piece because I always thought about you know myself as kind of trying to follow his shoes. Of course, I know not even close to being that good. Right. But there was just something about him that I really liked. Uh, and I always, uh, he was in the essay, he disappeared in later versions, but I'm with you on the following that guy. Yeah, it really, yeah, there's, there's something, you know, I think it's the history of baseball, you know, like yes. the, uh, I had a, a buddy, we, when we were growing up, him and his father collected baseball cards mm-hmm. and they would also get the annual version of the baseball encyclopedia. Yes. Oh man. Which is a massive set of books. Like, you yeah. know, like they, they talk about how baseball players count everything, just yes. everything. And again, it's that thing of seeing something over long periods of time, you know? And I, I think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, baseball is, is such a thing years ago, uh, or just a couple years ago, uh, Rob Menser and I both subscribed to a baseball website, called the slurve <laughs> and it was it's it was a sort of aggregator of baseball feature writing every week and it was it was great so yeah but you know i'm really glad uh, i know we're coming to the end of the time pretty soon but i'm glad we recycled back to baseball because uh it reminds me of and then going back to, to writing as well in this piece coming up and you asked me to say something about it you know, when when a sentence lands just right and sounds just right and hits the glove, it hits the yeah. mitt like a like a pitch just right, it just is true. And I've I wanted to um to share one sentence from sure. from the essay essay I have coming up. It goes. And I was ta- I was talking about how my son threw a ball at me and he was you know angry, and I wrote, he reminded me of a North Menominee Oriole from 1966. A passionate child throwing hard and wild. Now there you've got poetry, you've got time and place, you've got the strong verb throwing, Yeah. you've got the adjective hard, and then you've got the word wild, which is either, if you're talking about the boy, it's an adverb, if you're talking about the throw, it's an adjective. I mean, what a, what a great fucking sentence. It made my head spin. I'm as happy with that one as anything I've ever written. He was a passionate child throwing, you know, reminded me of 1966 Menominee, North Menominee Oriole, Oriole. Passionate child throwing hard and wild. Well, I like to go in Russian stuff and rock and roll. You think the Russians could dig your kind of music? They'll dig it. Save your energy. Lucky under! The big brusque satellite is just a damn it like I know! We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. We are really talking about humanism. Why did you put what we said on the radio? To encourage some interchange of ideas, of books, magazines, students, tourists, artists, radio programs, technical experts. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being. I want you and your boys to cease and desist from violating the American airwaves or I won't be responsible for the consequences. Further communications may not be possible. 
It's this guy. He's got a pirate radio station. What's on the comm channels? Very active, sir. Multi-phasing transmissions, overlapping. It's almost a gibberish. Welcome. 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 Simply adjust the frequency for the switch. Welcome to radio program. Beginning according to plan. Frequency. Just remember who you are. Radio program. Beginning. According to plan.